This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. My name is Ralph Gelati. I'm the Assistant Director of Student Development for Leadership Programs. and so great to see many of you here this afternoon. Um, we're honored that we could have such a dynamic, passionate, friendly, and um, very engaging speaker this, this afternoon, the Mayor uh, of Newark, New Jersey, the Honorable Cory Booker. Thank you all for being here, and on behalf of the Office of Student Development, I would like to thank the following departments and organizations who are helping us to co-sponsor today's program. The Villanova Learning Communities, the Department of Public Administration, the Department of Education and Counseling, the Center for Peace and Justice Education, the Center for Multicultural Affairs, the Office of Residence Life, the Black Cultural Society, Campus Activities Team, and Student Government Association. So many different individuals involved with today's lecture. I would also like to thank President Peter Donahue, Father Peter, our, our, and our Vice President of Student Life, Father John Stack, for their generous support of our student leadership initiatives. Following today's keynote, Mayor Booker has agreed to answer questions from members of the audience, and we'll have two volunteers by the microphones to assist with the Q&A, and they will pass the microphone throughout the room. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Mr. Terry O'Toole, former chair of the Villanova Board of Trustees, who will introduce our speaker today. Mr. O'Toole graduated from Villanova University in 1980 and later earned an MBA from Stanford University, graduating first in his class. He was a partner at Goldman Sachs and Company until 2006, where he also served as chief operating officer of the principal investment area. Presently, he is the co-managing partner of Tinicum Incorporated, a private investment firm based in New York City. When Mr. O'Toole completed his term on Villanova's Board of Trustees at the end of 2012, he very generously endowed the Terry O'Toole Family Presidential Scholarship Program, which will provide full funding for high-achieving, economically disadvantaged students from the Newark, New Jersey region, allowing students to attend Villanova who may not otherwise be able to financially. The gift envisions identifying students in an early age to support their academic development while still in high school and throughout college. We're very grateful for what you do, Mr. O'Toole, and welcome, please join me in welcoming Mr. Terry O'Toole. Well, good afternoon. It's uh, good to be back on campus. <clears throat> As I told Father Peter, it's uh, different being back when you're not the board chair anymore. I have nothing to worry about. Somebody else worries about that now. <clears throat> According to Google Maps, my home in Short Hills, New Jersey is 13 miles from Newark City Hall. But sometimes it feels like the distance is much greater. My wife serves on the board of the Scholarship Fund for Inner, inner City Children, which provides financial assistance to children attending schools of the Archdiocese of Newark. And every day she sees firsthand the challenges that people face in that city. I first saw Cory Booker speak in 2002 when he ran an unsuccessful race for the mayor of Newark. And there's a great documentary made about that campaign called Street Fight. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, I would, I would urge you to see it. In 2006, the Honorable Cory A. Booker took the oath of office as the mayor of New Jersey's largest city following a sweeping electoral victory. And he was reelected to a second term in 2010. With the recent announcement that Senator Frank Lautenberg will not seek re-election in 2014, there is speculation that Mayor Booker may run for that seat, and perhaps we'll hear about that this afternoon. 
If not, there's a Q&A period. <laughs> In April 2010, the city of Newark experienced its first homicide-free month in more than 40 years. Radical transformation of the Newark Police Department under Mayor Booker's leadership, together with the deployment of over 100 surveillance cameras in the city, has led Newark uh, to set the nationwide pace for crime reduction. Under Mayor Booker's leadership, the city of Newark is committed to a $40 million transformation of the city's parks and playgrounds through a groundbreaking public-private partnership. The Booker administration has also doubled affordable housing production within the last two years. Mayor Booker received his BA and MA from Stanford University, whose president, I would note, is a Villanova undergraduate. He has a BA in modern history at Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar, and he completed his law degree at Yale University. He has earned a reputation as a leader with innovative ideas and a willingness to take bold actions. With a clear mandate for change, Mayor Booker has begun work on realizing his bold vision for Newark. Please watch a short film introducing Mayor Booker. I think the future for the city of Newark, the economic development, the future for the city of Newark, the public safety, and the future of the city of Newark for our children is incredible. idea that we're brick city, that we're tough, just like bricks, strong, resilient, hard, and when we come together, frankly, there's nothing we can't build in this city. My team, my team is here. We've got, we've got our help, we got my help, get it done. And just about every movie, it seems like, is about uh, somebody who's trying to keep people safe or fight crime, some superhero. But the reality is, is, guys, this is real life. And we're trying to do some of the same things that Hollywood is trying to capture. We don't wear capes, we don't have special powers, but we're engaged, in my opinion, in the biggest and most important fight in America. First of all, how do you think I can help? Because I've got some ideas as well. So I walked in here like, oh my God, so many people showed up to hear me. And then your president said, well, some of them have to be in requirement for class, Corey. Don't get, don't get your head too big. Um, but it's really, it's really great to be here. And I'm, I'm, first of all, the gracious introduction. I'm so thankful for that, the kind words. You guys have a president who's also a father. You guys must feel like Sasha and Malia. You know, your president and father are the same. No? No? <laughs> 
Sorry, I played football in college, so I can't stand still too long or I think somebody's going to hit me. Um, so I'm really excited to be here. I'm even more excited to get to the question and answer period um, where anything is open, uh, fair game. If you want to ask me about my football career, you get extra credit for that. I already worked it out with your professors. The older I get, the better I was, so I have some great stories for you. Um, uh, but we can talk about anything. But I'm just excited about being here. Uh, I've had a lot of friends from graduated from the university. One of my close, close friends uh, graduated from here, and I used to hear all the time about Nova. And I'm like, Nova? Wasn't that a show on PBS? Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm really thrilled, uh, frankly, to have uh, some time to share from my heart about a subject that I've been uh, thinking about since I was a little kid, which is how do you make a difference in the world? How do you change the world? And I want to frame for you, I started last year uh, sort of thinking about it in a way that my parents framed it. And I'd love to sort of frame it for you in that way, talk to you a little bit about my experiences, highs and lows, and then open it up to you guys. But uh, I'm thrilled at the chance to sort of to burden you all with what I had as a burden as a kid growing up, um, which was a burden and a blessing, uh, the same thing as my parents. And, and my parents sort of saw the world through a very clear lens. Uh, and I tell you, it, it, it is interesting because it, as evidence for that vision, they would tell me stories from their lives. And I don't know if some of you have parents like mine, but my mom, you all, I've heard the same stories now for 40 years over and over again. But I listen to them very closely every time they tell them because my mom, every time she speaks, she has this penchant for accuracy and detail. I learn something new every time I talk to her. And my dad, I lean forward and listen to him speak because he has this penchant for exaggeration and hyperbole. Um, and, and he's this, this extreme speaker. Uh, my father, literally, he was born in the deep south. Uh, he was born to a single mother. He was born poor. Now, if I started saying that, he would interrupt me. He would literally heckle me from back, the back and say, don't you dare tell those people I was poor. I wasn't poor. I was po, P-O. I couldn't afford the other two letters. And, and the drama of his early existence just grows. You know, the first, the, the, the stories always took place during storms. I was like, did it ever not rain where you were? But then, like, the weather patterns changed. It's like it went into this hail period. At first, the hails were the size of golf balls, Corey. They were like golf balls. And then, eventually, he went through all of athletics. I mean, tennis balls, baseballs, soccer balls. And then it got to like the automotive period. The hail was the size of Cadillacs, I swear. And literally, the, the, the father, there's one of these, these pesky commandments, thou shalt honor thy mother and father. It's getting very hard because I had to get in an argument with my dad and say to him, there's no way in the mountains of North Carolina you had a tsunami. It just wasn't possible. And, and he says to me, boy, it was before the internet. You can't look it up, but it happened. <laughs> And, and, and so this is sort of my experience as a child, listening to these stories that were all about framing for my parents what they believed this world was about, what life was about, what my purpose was on this planet. And my father had a wonderful way of saying it that became sort of a, a part of a lot of speeches I gave last year because it was a sort of a beautiful part of my life. He would come up to me, you know, in this manly sort of dad to son way and say, son, he'd pat me on the shoulder. And he'd look at me and he would say something that I thought was so beautiful. He'd say, son, you are the physical manifestation of a conspiracy of love. And, and to me, that was so, so beautiful because he would back it up by letting me know what that meant. And, and, and you have to understand, my father was indeed born Poe to a single mom in the Deep South. 
and his mother couldn't take care of him. And so it was people in this community whose names I don't know who watched over him, who looked out for him. One family who I didn't get to know uh, took him in, put food on the table, a roof over his head. I, I cannot tell you that this kindness saved my father from going in a dramatically different direction. My father wasn't going to college. There was no history of college in his family. But it was people in this community that said, you're going to go to college. And my father had no money for college. So folks in the community, names I don't know. Two Thanksgivings ago, my father literally started crying around the table, which was a surprising thing for a guy who's often so happy. But he's getting old now. He's Parkinson's. And he started crying that he could not remember the names of the people who put dollar bills in envelopes to, so he could afford his first semester's tuition at North Carolina Central University, uh, HBCU down in North Carolina. And just imagine this, that return on investment for these people who, who afforded my dad the chance to go to college. And so he gets to college, he, he gets jobs so he can continue to stay there. And this is the crazy thing. My mom and my dad landed in college at this tumultuous period of our history, well before we were born. My, my parents landed in the early 1960s. The sit-in movement literally started in North Carolina. And next thing you know, my parents are involved in this, in this, in this world. And again, I have this, this, this humbling experience to know that I can barely name 50, 25 of the people that were a part of that movement, that were a part of that, 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 that on the front lines battling. I had this humbling experience. I, I, it was like one of the privileges of my life to be the commencement speaker at my mom's university on her 50th reunion. And, and I was down at Fisk University, uh, down in Tennessee, and uh, it was a night before dinner, and my mom comes up to me. Now, I don't know if there's any, any, if there's any social scientist here. I don't know if this has been studied, but if I could go back and do my PhD, I would do my PhD in this power that I suspect women have, maybe it's mothers, I should say, to take their child of any age, 40 years old, and make them feel like they're still 10. I don't know what it is. I really don't know what it is. And so my mom, I'm sitting there eating, and she says, boy, come here, come, come here, boy. And I'm like, what? And she says, come, come here. She grabs me by the hand, she starts pulling me around. And you have to understand, she's pulling me around, and I'm like, mom, I'm the mayor. I'm the mayor. You don't pull the mayor. And she's, I don't care who you are. And so she brings me over to these tables, and she introduces me to all these people. This is the woman that, that, that led our student boycotts of the local store that wasn't serving blacks, that was threatened with expulsion from the leadership, from the, from the faculty at the school. Here's the person over here that helped lead our student voter registration drives at a time it was dangerous to do so. You all remember the names, Goodwin, Cheney, Schwerner, people that died. As she was going around table to table, it was like she was saying, pay attention, pay attention, boy. These are people who struggled for you, who died for you. You may not know their names, but you owe them a debt you could never repay. When my parents moved to Washington, D.C., it was the same thing. They, they landed there at a time that numerous companies weren't hiring blacks. And here they were college educated, and they had doors being closed in their face. And so in the mid-1960s, what was going on? Well, black folks and white folks in that town were coming together to change that. And a whole bunch of people whose names I don't know worked together to have my parents be a part of the first wave of African-Americans hired by a small tech firm you guys may not have heard of called IBM. 
And next thing you know, after my dad is the first, um, one of the first blacks hired by an oil company, first blacks hired by, uh, by a, a department store, they, they're now going up the corporate ladder. And then they moved to New Jersey. And what they found in New Jersey was that in 1969-70, they weren't showing black families homes in white neighborhoods. And so what happened? A group of people came together, black folks and white folks, formed an organization called the Fair Housing Council in New Jersey. And they did these great sting operations. They would send my parents out to a house. They would be told it was sold or had been pulled off the market. My parents would leave and they would send a white couple behind them. My dad said they were not, they were Mr. and Mrs. Brown, Corey. They were, they were white, but they were Mr. and Mrs. Brown anyway. I'd say, yeah, yeah, dad, okay. <laughs> and, and so the Browns would go to the house. One of these houses my parents loved. They were then told it was sold in a small town called Harrington Park. The, 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 the Browns came after them, found out it was still, uh, it was still uh, for sale, put a bid on the house. On the day of the closing, my dad shows up with this lawyer, who I don't know his name, who walked into the real estate agent's office, my dad and the lawyer, and they just said, you were in violation of New Jersey Fair Housing. Well, they, 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 they revealed the sting. The real estate agent doesn't even wait, stands up and punches my dad's lawyer, sigs a dog on my father. Now, the size of the dog has changed over the years. <laughs> my dad tells me now it was Stephen King's Cujo. And my mom will put her head down and say it was just Dorothy's Toto. It was just, just like, oh, get out of here. So picture this. Now I'm growing up. I'm, I'm now part of this community. I, it's, it's 18 years later. I'm a senior in high school. I'm president of my class, a high school All-American football player, honor society. And my father would just look at me walking around the kitchen, looking, going back and forth, and then he'd call out to me. Hey, I said, what? He goes, don't you dare walk around here, boy, like you hit a triple. You were born on third base. <laughs> don't walk around here like you did something. And this would be the conversation. My father would say deep things like, you drink deeply from wells of freedom and liberty and opportunity that you did not dig. You eat lavishly from banquet tables that were prepared for you by your ancestors. Now, you could just sit back consuming consuming, consuming all that's been prepared for you, getting, as my dad called me, fat, dumb, and happy. Or you can metabolize those blessings and let them become energy and fuel for a greater purpose. And for my parents, that purpose for their two kids was simple. You who have benefited from a legacy of struggle, from a conspiracy of love, you need to be a part of that conspiracy because this nation ain't done yet because we still have kids that stand in Oakland and Chicago and the South Bronx and Camden who put their hand over their heart and say those five words. They profess it with, with, with alacrity, with, with determination. They say liberty and justice for all. Well, as I started to see in the world, the reality was there wasn't liberty and justice for all. In fact, that we live in a country where the zip code you're born in could often determine your destiny more than anything else. And that if I benefit from people who opened up those doors of opportunity so that I could walk through, that maybe the story of this country, generation after generation, this nation formed in perfect ideals, but in a savagely imperfect reality. 
that, that infected even the beautiful, amazing, inspiring founding documents. Think about this. Our, 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 the, the, the oldest constitutional democracy on the globe is America. This First Nation, it wasn't a matter, it wasn't a theocracy, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, 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 a nation that was founded in a, in, with a sense of divine rights of kings and queens, a monarchy. It wasn't a country that was founded on everybody looking the same. It wasn't founded on the same way as people talking the same. It wasn't founded on the same people having the same lineage. It was founded on a set of ideals, unifying human, human principles. And my parents say this, this nation founded in perfect ideals, savagely in perfect reality, so much so that the founding documents even couldn't help but reflect some of that. Native Americans referred to as savages. Women weren't referred to as all. Blacks were referred to as fractions of human beings. But yet it was these ideals that compelled every generation to make them more real and to make this a more perfect union. And so for my parents, it's very simple. That conspiracy that started with some group of white men who came together at risk of their lives, that conspiracy that was carried forward by people on the Underground Railroad, by people who stormed beaches in Normandy, but by generation after generation, you need to be a part of it. And so as I went through school, uh, my father says too much school. He said, boy, you got more degrees in the month of July and you're not hot. <laughs> <laughs> get a job, get a real job. He still looks at me and says, get a real job. Uh, I decided to follow my courage because my mom used to always tell me, he said, son, you need to live a fearless life. You need to fearlessly pursue your highest ideals. You need to have the courage to follow your truth. And so my brother and I both were wired similarly. He's uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, running a, 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 a school and I decided to follow the call of this great American poet. You guys might have heard of him, you might have studied him. The great American poet named Chris Rock. And, and, and Chris Rock has this joke where he says, why is it the most violent street in every city uh, is named for the man that stood for nonviolence. And, and, and uh, so I decided to move on to Martin Luther King Boulevard in Newark. Now, to be fair, Martin Luther King Boulevard is a long boulevard in Newark. It has many amazing sections then in the mid-90s. But in the mid-90s, the section I moved on to was probably one of the most dangerous streets in the state of New Jersey. And I remember moving there with this, you know, my, my mom, fearlessly following my passion, courageously living my truth. And I landed on the street, and I saw a lot of challenges that, that began to make me think that maybe my idealism got a little bit ahead of my sanity. And, and because it was a tough, tough neighborhood. And I'll never forget after witnessing violence, uh, after seeing a level of drug dealing that I had not seen, even though I had worked in tough inner cities before, I found this, this tenant president, this woman named Miss Virginia Jones, who's, who's sort of, I always say I got my BA at Stanford, but my PhD in the streets of Newark, and this was one of my great professors. And I'll never forget showing up at our door, you know, I was still a law student at that time, commuting back and forth from, from Newark. And I told her, I said, look, I'm Cory Booker. I'm from Yale Law School. I'm here to help you, ma'am. I felt like I was John Wayne. I should have said little Philly. Um, and and she, she looks at me and she, she, she says, you want to help me? And I'm like, yeah. And, and she was cynical. We talked for a little bit. And she says, okay, if you want to help me, you, you got to follow me. And she takes me downstairs and she walks me out of the building, through the courtyard, down the little steps, into the middle of Martin Luther King Boulevard. And here is this elderly African-American woman five foot in a smidgen, 
looking up at me, standing there as cars going back and forth. And she says, if you want to help me, tell me what you see around you. And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, tell me what you see. And so I describe myself, the abandoned building, uh, the graffiti. I, I describe the scene. And the more I talked, the more this woman looked upset at me. And I, I, I finally stopped and I said, what's wrong? She goes, you can't help me. And she turns around, she's sort of storming back towards the building. And I chase after this woman and I catch her on the side of the street. And I, I said, to her, I don't understand, what's wrong? And she wheels around, looks me straight in the eye. And again, she's shorter than me, but now I feel like she's looking down on me. And she says to me, boy, you need to understand something. The world you see outside of you is a reflection of what you have inside of you. And if you're one of those people that only sees darkness and despair, problems, that's all there's ever going to be. But if you're one of those stubborn people who every time you open your eyes, you see hope, possibility. You see love. You see the face of God. Then you can be one of those people that helps me. And she storms off. And I look down at my feet and I scratch my head and I think to myself, okay, grasshopper, thus endeth the lesson. <laughs> but this was my start of my professional career. I ended up going back and sitting with Miss Jones and, and just seeing how she was cut from that mold of all of these anonymous people who, but for them, I wouldn't be standing before you right now that she had this fearsome view of this country. She never gave up on her view of America. And she was a modern day freedom fighter. And her love of nation, her, her, her ferocity of focus, her clarity of vision, created transformations before even my eyes. I remember going down this basement that was a dank, dull, dreary basement, but then she would transform it, every single excuse to have a party for kids, create a sanctuary for, ch sanctuary for children, she did. Thanksgiving parties, Fourth of July parties. I mean, heck, there was not an Irish person within blocks, if not miles of there, and the best St. Patty's Day parties I've ever been to were in that, that basement. And see, this to me was her leadership. She had a vision for herself, and the world that was so compelling. And so I'm going to fast forward for a second to, to the time I'm mayor, but please understand, to me, this is what is foundation. First, recognizing upon where you stand. Second, knowing that it should infect your spirit so much that you open your eyes and not having a Pollyannish view that everything, hey, everything is all right. No, seeing the pain, seeing the hardship, seeing the trauma, but still finding hope, still finding hope. And then allowing that to, to move you to bring people together. And see, I have this simple idea. If you bring people together to do the things that other people aren't doing, you will get the results that other people aren't getting. That's what Ms. Jones was about. I used to sit in her kitchen. Folks would come together like a circle of women. And, and, and they would sit there and talk and strategize. I couldn't believe what I was witnessing around this kitchen table. Folks were just figuring out ways to solve problems. And so if you fast forward now to me being mayor of the city, that became my focus. How do you make change practical, real, substantive? Well, first, you just got to have a vision for who we are. 
And it was amazing to me when we started looking at a city, not through the eyes of the problems and the challenges, but having that stubborn view that Ms. Jones had. We actually started looking at Newark and seeing, oh my God, this is probably the best hands of cards of any city in America that they could get dealt. We saw everything from the third busiest port in the United States of America, an airport, to having one of the biggest top five college towns in the Northeast, to being 12 miles away from this city that some of you may have heard of called New York. Bloomberg has like city envy because he sits in my shadow. Um, <laughs> But being so close to go so close to to this this the center of the global economy, the more we started adding it up, the more we analyzed, the more we saw, hey, there's great things happening here. We went out and found a study of where our people spent their money. And we found out that Newarkers were spending half a billion to a billion dollars of their discretionary dollars outside of our city. And we said, wait a minute, that's bad, but that's an opportunity. We started looking at standing at the port. I was going out there. People would bring their goods and services in, they would put them on trucks, they would drive them out of the city, they would warehouse them at exit 8A, they would put them back on trucks when it was time to go to market, they'd drive them back into the city, and they'd use our rail lines or air freight. I'm like, wait a minute, that's a waste of time, money, hurting our environment, burning energy. There's opportunity here. The more we looked around, the more we started seeing the seeds for Newark's resurgence. And I used to have this metaphor, because I, I'm telling you, my first year as mayor, people came in with problems every single day. I was like, will somebody please tell me good news today? You know, we walked in, and I'm telling you right now, our police precincts, uh, uh, guys were using technology that belonged in a Barney Miller sitcom. Um, and if you laughed at that, you were revealing your age. <laughs> um, Guys were punching away on typewriters, didn't have computers. They would do one arrest in their entire shift, and they'd be out there typing up, uh, 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 typing up uh, papers in triplicate. It was outrageous. You know, we, we came in, and we couldn't even find out how many information we had on how many employees we had. When we first got in, we did desk audits. It made people come pick up their checks. At the end of the day, all the checks weren't picked up. We started seeing so many problems, but the more we looked for the, with, through eyes and vision of what could happen and what should happen, transformative things happen. Let me give you a, a, just a couple examples. First of all, the economic stuff I told you, it, it was amazing what we saw. We said, let's sit down and meet with our people at our port area. Let's pull people together that, that hadn't done things that they did before and look at strategies. Now Newark is having a warehousing boom. It's creating thousands of jobs by our port. It's incredible. Uh, the, the people now realize we did them favors by not having to truck their goods and services out. In fact, people are now finding Newark as the center location for distribution for the area, from Pathmark that have their biggest refrigerated warehouses in Newark, distributing from Boston to Baltimore. I go into Manhattan all the time and go into a Starbucks and look at any of the stuff that's being sold there. I pick up cookies and milk, and I just scream at the top of my lungs. My security always has to get me out of there quick, and I yell out, Newark, New Jersey, because Bartlett Dairy distributes for those areas, I have a little bit of Newark pride problem. You know, we, the spending patterns of our residents, we saw that was a problem. They should be spending in their own city, but we have to find places for them to spend. And so we brought people together to, to say, how are we going to open more businesses? That was a problem. We can't get access to capital. That was a problem. But we kept looking with a vision what's possible. We created loan funds. Now we've given uh, 50, 60 companies, helped them start entrepreneurs. We now have crazy aberrations, like the, one of the busiest Starbucks on the East Coast. Uh, well, excuse me, one of the biggest subways on the East Coast that goes to 24 hours a day and delivers. But what was more interesting to me, even than that, 
was bringing people together around issues that many people think are unsolvable. We talked about crime in my introduction, and, and we are still struggling. We have not solved this problem. But we decided that if we start bringing people together, looking at the data, we, started to, we could use our imagination to start finding solutions to these problems. And let me give you a couple examples. We saw some shocking data. Let me give you an example. If you are murdered in the city of Newark, you're the murder victim, you have an 80% chance that you were arrested before an average of 10 times. So we saw a city that people were coming out of prison and it was most likely their time to get shot and killed the first six months. In fact, we started seeing that the people that were shooting and being shot, it was this terrible cycle. And in fact, we started seeing the even worse cycle than that was in New Jersey, people go to prison and when they come out, their recidivism rates are over 60%. And I started looking at this and saying, God, I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat, this is outrageous. In fact, if you're a Republican and think big government is a problem, the biggest, most wasteful government in America has to be that the land of the free, home of the brave, locks up more of its citizens than anybody else. And if you think that Americans have a higher proclivity for crime than any other country, you must be kidding yourself. And so when we started looking at these problems, we started saying, let's apply our creativity, bring people together that haven't sat together before. And so we went out and found uh, 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 people from academia, we found people from private sector, we brought folks together. We brought Republicans together with Democrats. Heck, we got the right-leaning Manhattan think, uh, think tank, the Manhattan Institute, brought them together with grassroots activists who had problems saying the word Republican without a physical reaction. <laughs> Republican, oh, Corey, don't make me say the word. I can't, I can't get it out. Well, sit down, because you'll find that you have things in common. And before you knew it, we started coming up with ideas that hadn't been done anywhere else in the country, but were working great. One of the things we found out was guys come out of prison, a lot of times the reason they go back to doing crime is because they get caught up in all of this red tape, all of these administrative law problems. They can't even get their identification to use to get a job. And so after frustrations, they, they go back to what they know. And so we pulled together the law firms in our city and said, let's create the nation's first pro bono legal service for men and women coming out of prison. And we created something called the Reentry Legal Services, R-E-L-E-S-E, -E -E, release. It's incredible to see how the associates, some of these firms, felt like they were liberating the economic potential of a lot of people that were there. We said, you know what? There's this thing going on where, where guys are coming out of prison that have kids. We have a real big problem in our country about the children of incarcerated adults. They actually have one of the highest rates of incarceration themselves. Kids of incarcerated adults. The quote I heard, you heard at the end of that introduction, James Baldwin, children are never good at listening to their elders, but they never fail to imitate them. And so we said, what, we've got to start empowering men coming home from prison to be great dads. And being a great dad means not going back to prison, but being a great dad also means that you're a model in the community, that you're getting a job. And we polled prisoners coming home, and all the men were saying that they aspire to be great dads, that in many ways, some of them didn't want to be the same kind of dads that they never knew. And so I knew immediately this was a chance for me to fulfill a, 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 a desire that I had. Uh, you know, in college, I wasn't a member of a fraternity or anything, but I, I decided to form one of men who have kids. My mom still insists that, Corey, you should have to have a child, Corey, to get into that. But we formed a fraternity, Delta Alpha, Delta Sigma, dads, for guys coming home from prison. <laughs> And, and it's amazing. 
The guys get mentor fathers, because we all need mentors. The guys get parenting classes, group activities for their kids. We bring the women, the mothers of the, of the, of the kids together with the fathers, and we give them a chance to work things out because it's a natural adversarial relationship. Because if I was that woman, the guy came out of prison, I'd be like, hey, your child support payments, you miss them all while you're in prison. And by the way, they collect in arrears while you're in prison. I would be just like that, I'd show me the money. And the guy will say, how can I show you money when I can't even get a job or food to eat, for money for food to eat? So we bring them together and get them to work as a partnership. Long story short, we had another graduation yesterday. The program now has taken recidivism rates down from 60% to 7%. And, and this one program, a small program, we haven't grown it to scale, small program alone has saved Newark, uh, excuse me, saved New Jersey taxpayers millions of dollars in the cost it would have taken to rearrest, retry, re-imprison those people. And so my point is that I've now shifted my metaphor. I'm telling you right now, it's been a radical shift in my life. My metaphor used to be I'm a prisoner of hope. But now my metaphor is that I am hope unhinged. Because I believe there is nothing we cannot do. James Baldwin has this book called The Fire Next Time. At the end of it, one of the best two or three pages of literature, the end of that book is so inspiring. And he says in there, he says, human history is a testimony to the perpetual achievement of the impossible. And I think American history is a screaming testimony to the perpetual achievement of the impossible. And so if you have the weight of history showing you you can find a way out of no way, and if you have personal experiences like I do and like most of you do, of figuring things out, then the challenge has to be it, that it's no longer in America a matter of can we do something? The question really is, is do we have the collective will? And so as I talk to you all about changing the world, there's a few layers here. One is, again, understanding who you are and how you got where you are right now. Two, to me, again, it's, it's having that kind of infectious joy and love that your vision, you're the way we see the world, and I know it's tough and I'll talk, get to the toughness in a minute, but that your vision is one like Ms. Jones prescribed. And then it's this ability to bring people together. Now that's hard to do in a world like we live in, in a nation that seems more and more focused with ripping people apart, with defining our differences, with being left or right, Republican or Democrat, red or blue, as opposed to the simple thing I'm often worried about, which is how do we get forward, not left or right? That's a challenge, bringing folks together. And for me, I, I like being mayor because it's a, the convening power that my office has, but I see the greatest people are those folks who bring people together because not of what they say, not because of the office they hold, but because of how they act and inspire people through their actions. In fact, to me, it's the humblest of people in my city that are often the greatest conveners of folks. One of my favorite tenant meetings I, was, I went to was one on Elizabeth Avenue. The people were, were, were inspired and engaged uh, to do community gardening and some other things. But the backstory is what's amazing. An elderly, retired state worker who lived in these high-rises would look outside his window and see an abandoned lot overgrown with weeds, strewn with debris, that drug dealers were using to sell drugs. 
And he used to look at this. Now, I have this problem that sometimes I indulge in and that I imagine everyone here indulges in, and I think too much of us indulge in, which is that we allow our inability to do everything to undermine our determination to do something. I, I'm telling you right now, I've learned when it comes to change, it's not the big things that matter. It is the small, everyday acts of kindness, decency, and love that over time add up to transformative change. And I, I tell you, I, I get into that, and in fact, I was talking to somebody in the cocktail party about that I'm always looking for that fast, quick fix. I'm always looking for the, the quick thing. What, what one thing can I, what's the, somebody walked up to me and said, what's the one thing you could do to stop murders in Chicago? And I was like, move everybody out, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, there's no one quick fix, right? But the people who live a life of every single day understanding that the biggest thing they could do in any day is a small act of kindness, small act of goodness, a small act of justice. Those are the folks who often make the biggest impact. And this is the example. This guy's looking out this window, and one day God delivers unto him a stimulus check, and it came in the mail. And now I confess to you all, maybe I won't put myself out there, but in my circle of friends, when we got a stimulus check, let me give you the top three things we bought. Food. A we. More food. <laughs> this guy goes and takes his stimulus check and goes to Home Depot in Newark on Springfield Avenue, buys a lawnmower, a, a weed whacker, uh, some bags, and goes down to back home and goes into the lot right by the drug dealers. Doesn't mess with them, just goes into the lot. Starts picking up trash. You know, every few days or so, he would go back to that lot. Some days he would mow, some days he would rake. Over time, weeks, months, I'm telling you, that lawn looked like the White House lawn. It was gorgeous. And what happened to the drug dealers? They left. And now that whole building, he was a hero. And by the way, their tenant organization was energized. And so I ended up in that tenant organization, them asking me about how to create an urban garden, just like Michelle Obama did on the White House lawn. And so my point is this, change definitely is inspired and motivated. I was telling some, to, to these two gentlemen right here earlier, um, are you writing your homework there, man, or is that taking notes? You're taking notes? You're scaring me. <laughs> You're scaring me. Mr. Healy, I, I'm, I'm terrified of you, man. I want to start talking faster, see if you can keep up. Uh, I was telling the other day, I, I was inspired. I was watching last night about James Meredith. One guy integrating an entire university. One man. What difference one person can make. But the more inspiring thing is that James Meredith, I'll never forget, is one of his marches where he was shot. He inspired the action of others. He brought other people together. And so this is the point I want to make, is that we have to, at the end of the day, make a decision. It's a decision you have to make over and over and over again. Will you accept things as they are, or will you take responsibility for changing them? That's it. And if you decide to accept responsibility, 
It means doing something about it. And I could go through, I could talk for hours about Newark residents. This is what sustains me. People who don't get their names in the paper, don't get invited to speak at universities, but are the heroes of my city. My, it's one guy driving by, he's just on his way to work. He saw graffiti every day, like we all probably do when we drive in cities. And he just got tired of seeing it. So he went up to that same Home Depot, which I guess is a great place for do-gooders to do good. <laughs> and he buys some paint. And then every, it doesn't have to do it all. He stops, paints over a little graffiti, gets back in his car, goes to work. The next day, stops, a little graffiti, goes back to work. He's not late, he's got jobs, he's got things to do, he's got a job to go to. But eventually he became like a hero in the city. I recognize him as my state of the city address. He got a, this rap reputation. And so for me, this is the mantra that I don't try to preach, and I know you're listening to me right now, but I try to do. And the times in my life that I've hit a brick wall, the times in my life that things got bad, I try to focus on that, not surrendering to cynicism, not, not allowing myself to be consumed where my vision, where Miss Jones's vision is clouded over, not allowing myself to feel that sense of overwhelm, but connecting to that source. And so I wanna tell you about a bad point in my life, and then I'd like to get to questions. But the bad point is, is important. And, and as we said in, in our interview earlier, um, that the bad points are the ones that teach you the most. And so I got elected to office um, in, uh, first in 1998. I ran for mayor in 2002 and lost. And that was the subject of the documentary that was mentioned, Street Fight. And has anybody seen Street Fight? A lot of you have. Okay, it, was, it was, uh, won the Tribeca Film Festival. It was nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, unfortunately, it lost to March of the Damn Penguins. <laughs> The father can tell you that those beasts are spawns from Satan. <laughs> I'm a vegetarian, but I now make exception for penguin meat. <laughs> they taste just like chicken. <laughs> um, anyway, it was, it's a great story that also talks about loss. And I, I, I really recommend this, guys. If you're going to have a spectacular failure in your life, have a documentary team there to capture it. It's, a, it's very good advice. But my first election ever in 1998, where I became the youngest person ever elected in my city, only to be broken by a Villanova graduate oh, <laughs> about eight years later, but I became the youngest person elected in my city, and I was so excited. You remember, I thought this one big thing, an election will change Newark. No. I get elected, and, and I'm, I'm all excited, and I go down to City Hall, and I reach, I meet the implacable wall of resistance. The mayor of the city who saw me as a future threat probably, which was very prescient of him, because I was. Um, but he, it's little strange things started happening to me, like the heater in my office during July just wouldn't stop pumping out heat. Uh, um, that my car got ticketed every time I parked in front of city hall along with the other council people. <laughs> Uh, it was just little things were annoying me, and I, I thought I was going to do a great job, so I studied budgets from all these other cities, brought the best practices back, and I couldn't even get people to show up to the meeting for me to show them about a better way to do budget practices. And then something I realized about a legislature that I must have skipped at poli-sci class, but legislators, when you go down there as a, a newly elected legislature, legislator, you, you have to get a majority to do anything. Did you guys know that? It's, it's just these things, they, they sprung on me. And so I was getting nothing done. I was elected. I went from being a nonprofit do-gooder 
to getting nothing done. And it was frustrating. A year passed, and I felt like, why am I wasting my time? I'm not making a difference. And I remember just getting, just getting really just headaches and, and migraines and just like, why? And just feeling, and then the, something happened that just made it all explode. As I got a call from a woman named Elaine Sewell, who was the tenant president for these high rises uh, in the northern part of the ward I represented, and she told me it was the wild, wild west up there. There was violence. The security company quit. And she said, you've got to get up here and do something. You've got to get the police to come up here. And I tell her, I go, look, I'm just one city council person. I can't get the police to stop ticketing my car. I can't get them up there. And before you knew it, I was telling her all the reasons why I couldn't do what she was asking me to do. And my reasons were legitimate. But she's not happy. She starts to get upset. I get upset that she's getting upset. And before you knew it, we're yelling at each other. And next thing you know, I'm hanging up the phone. And I hit my breaking point. I am done. And so I leave City Hall. I, I walk to uh, where I was living now. I had now moved into Brick Towers, the high rises where Miss Jones lived. And as I'm walking there, I realize what time it is and that Miss Jones must have just gotten home from work. And when Ms. Jones got home from work, she would stand like a sentinel in front of those buildings, just watching over them. And you have to understand, when you're in a bad mood, when you are in a funk, you, there's certain folks you just don't want to see, Miss Happy, Miss Always, uh, 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 seeing the world through eyes of goodness and hope, la-di-da-di-da. And so I now see her from a distance. And again, this is something that should be studied. Elderly woman in the community, they have some vision that like they see everything that's going on. But I'm still now, I'm going back to high school physics. And I'm thinking to myself, which vector can I take to enter the buildings without her seeing me? And of course, she sees me. And I see her and I just walk past her and I'm like, hi, Miss Jones. And she just looks at me, walk, and she says, boy, don't you walk past me. And I stop. And she goes, what's wrong? And I just look, man, she goes, come here, give Miss Jones a hug. <laughs> and I just walked up to her and I went, hug, hug. You know, the kind of hug you give to somebody after you broke up with them? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, and I gave her the breakup hug. And, 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 and I let go and she looks at me and she goes, now tell Miss Jones what's wrong. And it was almost like she pushed the button because I just, I, I just let loose on her. I told her everything is wrong. I've been in office for a year. I don't feel like I'm getting anything done. And then I ended with this whole Elaine Sewell. It's like, wow, wow, West up there. I don't know what to do. You know, she wants me to bring the police up there. I don't know what to do. There's so much violence up there. I don't know what to do. People living in fear. I don't know what to do. And then she looks at me with her eyes get wide. Like God has just whispered something in her ear. Like she had the wisdom from on high. And I stopped speaking. And she looks at me and she says, I know what you should do. And I'm like, okay. And then she looks at me and she goes, yes, I know what you should do. And I'm like, yes, I heard you the first time. And then she just looks like this. She goes, yep, I know what you should do. And I said, Miss Jones, I don't have time to play. Tell me what to do. And then she goes, okay. She leans a little forward. I lean a little forward. And she goes, you? I said, yes. She goes, you? I said, I heard that. <laughs> She said, you should do something. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, what? She goes, you should do something about that problem. And I just wheeled around and I stormed away from this woman. 
And I get to my lobby of my building. Now, I lived on the top floor. And I have to tell you, I believe, Father, I believe that God has dominion over the world. I am a man of deep faith. In fact, if you walked into the mayor's office, you would see on the desk the Bible, as well as the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, and the Tanakh, just in case. <laughs> just in case, Father. You never know. <laughs> but I believe God has dominion over the entire world except for one place. I think that public housing elevators belong to the devil. <laughs> because these elevators knew me. If I was in a good mood, I'd ride up. If I was in a bad mood, they wouldn't work. If I had to go to the bathroom, they'd let me in and get stuck. And so, of course, I'm in a bad mood, so I walk up 16 flights of stairs. I go in, I'm puffing and puffing, I sit on my couch, and there's the Bible there, and I just grab it and I open it up, and there's this passage that I heard a hundred thousand times before. It says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can... Isn't this a religious school? Oh my God! Rick Santorum is right! This godless elite universities! If I was in Newark and I said that phrase, people would be screaming, move mountains! Somebody would put a lighter up. Another person would dance around. Where am I? I thought this was a Catholic school. Let's try this again. <laughs> if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can. Thank you very much. Ay, ay, ay. But then the second passage, the second verse, some people are like, uh-oh. <laughs> the next verse, I didn't know it, but this time it pumped out. It says, sometimes you must fast and pray. And so I call up my staff member and I said, get me a, get me a, 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 a tent. And we set up a tent out in Garden Spires. And I'll never forget, I went out there, setting up this big tent, and Ms. Sewell comes down, and I said to Ms. Sewell, I said, look, I'm so sorry I disrespected you. I'm so sorry I raised my voice. I said, um, I'm out here. I don't know what we're going to do to solve the problems, but we're going to do something. <laughs> and we hugged, and I loved that hug. And I said to her, would you do me a favor? I'm not going to eat while we're here. I'm going to go on a hunger strike. I'll fast the entire time. And I said, would you just do me a favor? Can we pray every morning? And she said, absolutely. And so we actually got a few people, four of us together. We prayed, and then I did something that, that this is the one thing you really should write down. Is when you become a politician, you've got to be good at doing this. And I did something that I now do very well as a politician. I called a press conference. <laughs> and and we, we, we told the folks, we said, hey, um, this, this is the United States of America. How can people live in fear in their own communities? How can people be afraid to let their kids go to the local store, bodega? And I, I went on like that, and I challenged. I said, we can't allow this to go on. And the next thing you know, we, we pull everybody together, and, and, and I go to bed in the tent with some other friends, and, and I woke up the next morning, and it was amazing what happened. These big 12 guys come up to me uh, in the morning and, and after the next prayer, and they say, are you... Cory Booker. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, we're, we're uh, correctional officers from the maximum security prison. We're not going to let you stay out here alone. And then other folks started coming out. Thomas Reddick, who's still a friend of mine today, pastor in that neighborhood, 
came out to me and said, wait a minute, I'm a black pastor, and, and you're telling me that you're going to be out here fasting and praying? And I'm like, yes, sir. He goes, well, I'm in on this. <laughs> People came out, there were community leaders, block leaders, hundreds of folks. The mayor of West Orange came down with his police officer, still a good friend of mine now, John McKeon, uh, uh, and, and said, I'm with you on this. We had uh, hospitals that started coming out to do health screenings for seniors and kids. We had uh, companies that started doing job fairs. The first one out was UPS, hired people from the community. It was amazing. We had uh, people, students coming from as far away as NYU students coming to be with us in this effort. Uh, we had a guy from Wall Street who saw what was going on and out of the compassion of his heart, seeing hundreds of people out there, he sent like all of these pizzas out there, which really ticked me off um, because I was on a hunger strike. <laughs> and I love pizza. <laughs> but it was amazing to me as day after day happened, it just became, we had late night meetings with some of the guys who were dealing drugs, listening to their real stories and trying to help some of them. We set up mentoring, really. it was just incredible what was going on, the owners of the building offered to do more security, invested thousands of dollars in changing the security. And then on the 10th day, the mayor of the city came out. And I'll never forget this moment. We met in the middle of this huge crowd of people to see what was gonna happen. And he had some prepared remarks. And I, I went up to him and I just hugged him. And not the breakup hug, but a real hug. Somebody took a picture, I still remember, it was on the front page of a section of the newspaper. We ended our embrace, he put away his remarks. He turned to the crowd and said, this is over. I'm going to bring security out here. We're going to end the crime and violence. And there was no place in that area, uh, uh, in that neighborhood for kids to play. We're going to build a park right here. Now, I tell you this story not because of that victory, because it wasn't a victory. I actually, pardon me before I get to my main point, wants to tell you that, remember what I said before, change doesn't come in an instant. It doesn't come because of one act like that. The mayor actually kept police out there for a long time. And some of you know, though, eventually the police left, and what happened? Crime came back, and he never built a park. I'm mayor now, and we built a park. <laughs> and, and, but that's not this, no, that's, not the, that's my little ego talking. <laughs> the reason why I tell the story, though, is this. Because of the last moment, I tell the story because of the last prayer. And, and, and what I want to tell you is that this time there was like 200-plus people there. And I'll never forget, as we were wrapping up, looking around and seeing this huge circle of people. And here I hadn't eaten for 10 days. But when we all joined hands, it is the strongest I had ever felt in my life. And there I looked around me on my favorite view of America I had had up to that point. Because there were believers and non-believers, people of faith and non-agnostics. There were blacks and whites and Latinos and Asians. There were older folks and younger folks and everywhere in between. There were Christians and Muslims and Jews. And when we held hands, I'm telling you, I heard the prayers begin. There were prayers in Arabic and Hebrew and Spanish and English. But call me delirious if you want. I heard the echoes of our common ancestry. I heard the words of an African, African proverb that says, when spider webs unite, they can tie up a lion. I heard the words of a great Jewish woman, an Israeli leader, who said that Jews together are strong, but Jews with other people are invincible. I heard this one singular word from the Muslim faith 
It's one of the pillars of Islam. It's one word, Tawheed, which means there is a oneness to all of humanity, a oneness to the divine, that we are all are connected. I heard the words of this black minister in a jail cell in Birmingham in April of 1963 when he wrote that we are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a common garment of destiny. And I heard the words of this one nation that's so young that's still trying to courageously tell its truth, still trying to live up to its highest calling. The three words that are from a dead language that this nation uses as its hallmark. And those three words are e pluribus unum. I stand here before you hope unhinged with a believer that we're coming to an era of our society where we can do anything. But now more than ever, we need people with a vision rooted in the understanding of who we truly are. Now, more than ever, we need people who have the courage to make their lives a testimony of their truth, who don't surrender to circumstance and cynicism. Now, more than ever, we need people who can bring people together, not define themselves by what they're against, but distinguish themselves by how well they can connect people one to another. We need folks to understand that being great is not about having other people recognize your greatness, but being great is having other people recognize their own, and that they have the capacity to transform. I end with this, what my parents used to end my days with as a boy. They would read my brother and I every imaginable types of bedtime stories, but they you know, would read Alex Haley, and they would read uh, um, uh, children's books. But I loved often when my parents would read words with great purpose. And one of my favorite things that they read was a poem by a man named Langston Hughes. And the end of the poem was a challenge that my mom and dad would talk to us about, about you need to swear an oath to this country, that patriotism is not about a flag pin, not about how loud you can sing the national anthem. It's about swearing an oath, not with words, but with your spirit, with your being, with your actions. And so this poem that I'll end with is, by uh, Langston Hughes, and it ends with calling us to swear that oath. And it's simply this. It says, Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet, but yet must be the land where everyone is free. The poor man, the Indian, the Negro, me. Who made America? Who sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain, must make this mighty nation live again. Oh yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me, but I swear this oath, America will be. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you.
I take back what I said about you being godless. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. My brother in orange. I wore the tie just for him. <laughs> are we going to go to the left first or are we going to go to the right first? Not that I'm trying to be political about this. Does anybody, here, yes. Would you talk about uh, how you feel about the marriage equality issue and how you came to those opinions? Yeah, um, so let me, warning real quick, because what you write in college will come back to you. I, 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 I'm telling you, I wrote an essay 20 years ago about uh, being a high school student and growing up in a very homophobic environment. And I wrote this story, uh, uh, this, this column that now is, was rediscovered by some political websites and now became a, uh, my high school, my college writings became well known. Um, but look, I, I grew up, uh, actually I just talked to this young man who came out before his class. Uh, I, I was giving the, the, the keynote address for the Human Rights Campaign, which is a, the, the nation's largest LBGT uh, community and I and I, I I met the young man who came out to his class in the same region of New Jersey that I did, and he got a standing ovation from his classmates, and it just became a learning moment. Um, but in college, when I was a freshman, when I landed in college, I worked at a crisis hotline center with um, with a, uh, uh, a a lot of just really beautiful human beings and a lot of people were calling, uh, really distressed and were coming out. And we had a, we had a uh, gay and lesbian counselor. And I, I was sitting there on the front lines and seeing this pain and stories that were shocking me about abuse, about violence, about um, um, uh, suicide. Uh, and uh, got to know this young man named Daniel Bao who just shook me about my uh, bigotry. And it was for a guy who had ordered his life, as I told you from my parents, about love and equality and acceptance. Uh, I quickly came to uh, really uh, resent those parts of me that did not recognize the beauty, the equality um, of, of all God's children. And so uh, I became an instant activist on campus and became very uh, upfront uh, in tough environments. I was a football player, for crying out loud. And, um, and so, you know, when I became mayor, fast forward 20 years uh, or more, um, and um, I saw that my city was a very hostile place uh, for, uh, for gay, lesbians, bisexuals, and, and, and people from the transgender community. And I, there was a murder on Broad and Market. I mean, literally in our downtown of a woman that was hit on by a man, and she said, I'm gay. And he stopped, I think he got out of a car, and then stabbed her to death. And to see the way my community um, reacted to that and didn't own that. Uh, and there were a number of incidents, I can tell you, where you know, uh, uh, you know, kids playfully kiss in yearbooks a lot. Uh, when there was two men that were kissing in a yearbook, the superintendent of schools ordered every single yearbook with black marker to black out that picture uh, when it wasn't doing the same for, for heterosexual couples. And so for me, it's, it, you know, I made a lot of choices when I got into politics, um, and this was just one of them, that I was gonna be an advocate uh, for what I see as one of the last hurdles for equality. And what I see that what gay and lesbian youth go through uh, in our country, it grieves me deeply to see the higher levels of suicide, to see the higher levels of abuse and the like. And so I've taken some very public stands, and, I, and, and 
uh, and, and stand very firmly for them, and I will continue to. But my evolution, um, um, I, I hope that people, and in many ways it was good that my college, uh, I wrote for the college newspaper, um, that my college essays came out, because I think that, no pun intended, um, that, um, because I think it's really important for us to show that we as a nation can involve. I mean, there was a time when a black person marrying a white person was illegal all throughout our country. And, and we've come to grow to love and accept that. And people were using biblical justifications for that. People were using uh, all types of justifications. And so my, my thing is right now, um, we just, and we need to be more forgiving and tolerant of each other and, and helping all of us, uh, to my opinion, get to a higher plane of love. Right. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, we already do something here at Villanova, but I was wondering if you had a vision for how a university could play a part in changing things or making things better. So, um, first of all, I should start asking people's names. What's your name? What's your name? Oh, Noreen. Noreen. So, Noreen, I think that universities are the center for change and activism and service. And I think that they don't get enough credit, those universities that really have that kind of mission. And Villanova, uh, you know, I took some time to read before I came down here, and obviously I know a lot of my friends, student friends, you know, th this, is a, this is a university that has a profound history of service, uh, of, of giving to others. And so my view, vision, I don't have any particular tactics or strategies for you all, especially because I, I could probably learn some uh, for you all to take back to my universities. But I just encourage us to be far more conscious of the fact that students can make a dramatic change. And if you go from uh, um, the battle against apartheid to Tiananmen Square, you're going to see that student activists, and I'm take us to the civil rights movement here, have been at the center of, of so many of our globe, to here square, so many of our global movements for, for justice, for equality, uh, for advancement. And so I just encourage that. Uh, that this is a time in your life that we could be doing more of that. And I, and I challenge the students here to understand that, um, and I said this in, the, in, in, the, in the, my interview earlier, is look, we all, when I was a student, I was the most overcommitted student there was. I was a football player, I was uh, president of my class, I was writing an honors thesis, I was doing all of these things, but we should still take time to do something in service um, beyond that which your course of study is or what have you. And I'll never forget when I was uh, in law school, you know, you're like the 1L and you've seen Paper Chase, uh, um, and, and I was like scared, you know, you go to law school scared, uh, uh, and I was determined to focus on nothing but studying, and I was sitting in a, a Black Law Students Association, and somebody had come in to give us a presentation about being a big brother, and I sat there, and I, I you know, it's terrible when your own words come back and echo and haunt you. And I, I realized I wasn't living up to my, my words. And, I, and long story short, I decided, you know what, as scared as I am, want to focus on my studies, I'm, if only four hours a month, four hours a week, excuse me, no, four hours a month, excuse me, is, is being to be a big brother, a big, a, a big brother, a little, a big sister, rather. And four hours a month is the amount of time we spend watching our favorite TV show in that month. And so I decided to do it, and it became such an amazing experience. I think I got out of it more than my little mentee did. And, and so I challenge you all to do something out of your normal course that's direct service and, and see how enriching it is to your soul and to your experience. And I draw a lot, in fact, I've stayed, a, I've stayed being a mentor. It's something we try to really push in Newark. So I don't have any tactic for you except for this, which is 
to really challenge the students to be of service, challenge students to get out of their norm, to discover other ways of serving, and, and I'm telling you, your experiences will help you blossom. All right, we're gonna go, this gentleman, yes. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Tim Horner, I'm the Center for Peace and Justice. On Thursday, we're having a faculty and student forum on uh, the current gun control legislation that's coming up, and I'm kind of curious, as you, of a mayor of an urban city, and a lawyer, but also about how does this whole debate about gun control strike you? Um, I've, I've spoken dramatically about this on Sunday morning shows. It's an issue I feel very strongly about. I've been a part of a large coalition of mayors called the Mayors Against Illegal Guns. Uh, I joke about Mike Bloomberg all the time, uh, but I think he's one of the great leaders in America right now. Um, just seeing him from sort of an in, intimate relationship uh, sense. He's been a friend for a long time. I always joke that he gave me my best advice in politics, and we should definitely write this down too. Um, he said, Corey, if you want to be a mayor, you should really be a billionaire first. <laughs> and, and it's just brilliant advice. Uh, um, uh, I can't shake the, the, the massive impact of that wisdom. Um, but we pulled, us mayors, long, long, years and years ago, and we sat down and said, look, we have got a serious problem um, um, that we can't stop on the local level because the guns being used for violent crime aren't coming from many of our cities, They're not coming from New York, Chicago, Newark, um, Philly. And, and we started using data-based research. And so I, I just want to frame this for you because I found that out, um, and, 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 and I wish... I wish none of us, I wish we couldn't use party labels. I really wish. I wish the only party label we could have is data. <laughs> what does the data show? And, and, and so for example, I, uh, I, I am a Democrat and, and, and my, I have a natural reflex, uh, like the Harlem Shuffle type stuff. If I hear something, I will jump to uh, the, sort of the Democratic side of the issue. But what I've learned as a mayor is to stop first before I reflex and analyze the data before me. So the Heller decision was a Supreme Court decision that overturned the Washington DC's handgun ban. And, and when it happened, all of my friends on my side of the aisle were like, oh, how horrible. But I stopped and I said, let me look at the data in my city. Because in New, New Jersey, you can buy a gun um, if you're a law-abiding citizen. And I found out that none of the shootings in my city, none of them were done with an individual law-abiding citizen who bought a gun. They were all done with people who could not buy a gun. They would not pass a background check, except for one which was a correctional officer who used her side to shoot her boyfriend, um, who probably deserved it. Um, <laughs> joke, I am not condoning violence. I hope this is, this is gonna be my 47% moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> Cory Booker. <laughs> Cory Booker condones violence. Thanks, girlfriends should shoot boyfriends. Um, if that was the case, I might not be alive right now. Um, <laughs> um, so so th on that data, why would I be in favor of, of law changes that would undermine your ability, I'm assuming, sir, that you are a law-abiding citizen, um, that, would your, that your ability to uh, buy a gun, it's just not making sense. And what, what I saw when I joined the Coalition of Americans Against Illegal Guns is we were doing database analysis um, um, on what would stop the violence in our communities. And we came down on things that the majority of gun owners support. Bloomberg used a, um, a Republican pollster, Luntz, to poll gun owners in America. And I was blown away by the sensible things that would stop violence in our neighborhoods. And again, the data shows it. If you're a woman that is murdered in America, 50% likely that the person who's murdering you is an intimate, someone that you know. 
in states that have shut down secondary markets, gun shows and other places where you don't have to do background checks, they've cut that rate of, of those rates of murders down 40%. I could give you lots of data examples of how shutting down secondary markets works. And I can tell you that just the extreme example of if you are a terrorist on the terrorist no-fly list um, in the United States of America, you could go, not you couldn't fly there, but you could drive down to Virginia right now and buy a trunk load full of weapons from a secondary market. And so I, 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 you know, I was just reading the other day before I was going on Face the Nation yesterday, uh, uh, thinking that guns might come up. So I was rereading President Obama's position on guns. And you know what? I'm in favor of an assault weapon ban. I'm in favor of an assault weapon ban. And sh the data shows that the number of uses of those weapons in, in, for murders went down. So I'm in favor of it. The data shows it supports it. But I will tell you, there's a lot of political capital to spend on less than 10%, uh, significantly less than 10% of my gun crimes in my city, which are handgun crimes. And so if I'm going to prioritize what I want to see, um, those high magazine uh, clips I put in there, assault weapons, but well before that I'd put down improving the NICS system, the universal background check system, uh, uh, shutting down secondary markets, uh, uh, and m more security, which is in his plan as well, more enforcement of straw purchasers, which is where you use a, a person that will pass a background check to go in and buy a gun. And if we do the things that everybody agrees on first, or if we had done them 10 years ago when we all agreed on them, we would have stopped large amounts of carnage in our country. And the and, and last thing I have to say, which I really want to challenge folks on, um, because these are the things that we, th this is where we have to own up to as a community. Like, we as a country, we don't like talking about poverty. We don't like talking about race. These things make us feel uncomfortable. We don't have uh, conversations on it. And there you realize, then you, re then you end up with things like we have in New Jersey, which is about uh, 13, 14% of the state are black, but about 60% of the prison population is black. Now, again, unless you believe that blacks have a higher proclivity for crime, than whites do, then you know something is, there's something off there. Um, and so I'm, I, what happened in Connecticut is grievous, unimaginable that you send your kid to grade school and they, they don't come home. But the fact that most people in this room know who Jean Benet Ramsey is or Natalie Holloway, or I can give you a lot, but can't name one kid in Philly that was murdered, can't name one kid, can't name one kid in Newark that was murdered. There, there's a, there's, there's a, there's a, a Virginia Tech every single day in America, every single day. We're, we don't need any more motivation not to act now and do something about this. All right. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, oh, wow, that's loud. I'm Rich Tuzio. Um, I was wondering earlier in Rich, you, where are you from? I'm from Philadelphia. I'm from Springfield, right? But you like the, the Giants, right? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> not at all. Sorry, um, Rich. I'm not. I, I, I was gonna, you know, make fun of you for having more hair on your face than I have on my head, and I was gonna, <laughs> but I'm not. I've gonna heard take that joke too many times. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm take it easy on you now, sir. Because um, I, earlier in your speech, you said that um, you worked together, you brought together people from the Manhattan Institute and grassroots organizations who don't use the R word. Um, as a is that what we're calling it now? The that's R what we're going to call it here. Okay. Um, as a politician who's exploring his national ambitions right now, how do you do that on a national level? How do you bring together a party that really doesn't seem willing to work with you right now? So, God willing, I can come back. You guys will invite me back here in 2015, and I can tell you as a, a United States senator, maybe. Um, but. Um, <laughs> 
But so I'm, I'm not going to talk about that, which I don't necessarily know. I will talk about there's some great senators that I love, Senator Kuhn, Senator Bennett. I can go through a long list of guys who work across the aisle in ways that we don't see in the public because, by the way, as I found out the hard way in my profession, the media focuses on what they want to focus on. And they're not always focusing on the good stories of bipartisanship. They're not always focusing on the relationships that are built. And once we get, once the media, and we're part of the media, we're all, we're actually all our syndicators of media ourselves now more than ever. If you have more than six Facebook friends, you syndicate media every day to your friends. Um, and so once you have a narrative, they don't want to let go of that narrative. And the narrative right now is we're uh, viciously divided and that there's nobody working together and nobody sits and has coffee together and the like. When, uh, as I started exploring the Senate, and I'll take you through, very similar, bigotry and hatred towards the Senate, <laughs> those mayors get things done, um, to actually talking to senators and finding out, um, finding out uh, uh, these really great public servants who work every single day and do get many things done. And, when I sat and talked to some senators, they're saying, yeah, we were able to speed cancer drugs uh, to market through doing X, Y, and Z. Oh, you know, poverty in Africa is a real big issue. Uh, let me tell you some of the things we were able to get done on those things. So those things aren't high on the, they don't make CNN headlines. But you're absolutely right. I, I, I'm very upset. Let me give you some things I'm upset about. Um, how much time do you have? <laughs> um, look, I'm upset that we live in a nation that doesn't recognize these days, uh, doesn't talk about, uh, the obvious area we all agree on, on the value of immigrants to our country. And it bothers me that you probably could poll Congress people and they would all agree on something like the DREAM Act and how it's even to me, and I don't want to use it to become all moralistic, but I think it's morally unjust to have a kid here since they were one years old and you educate them, they don't know any other country, and that we don't see the value of them here. I think it's ridiculous when I talk to everybody from the head of NJIT to the head of Stanford University, um, and they tell me, how can we let all these kids come into our country, the smartest people from the world, come to our institutions of higher learning, and get this great education, and as soon as their student visa is over, we kick them out of our country, that kills, it hurts our economy. Um, I think it's ridiculous that the nation that built the Panama Canal, the nation that built the Hoover Dam, these infrastructure projects that are still producing a return on investment, but yet, if you look at our spending as a, go as a government, the, the percentage of our expenditures per, um, uh, as a percentage of GDP for infrastructure has gone down. And now we have a decaying infrastructure that's actually going to cost us more in the long run than it would fixing it now. Um, I could go on and on and on about things that if you actually poll people in the Republican Party as well as the Democratic Party, people would agree that these things are wrong. And I can go on the other side of the aisle and, and for a second sound like a Republican if you want. I think it's ridiculous that the, federal, the United States government spends more than it, than, it, uh, than it takes in. And I think that you all, millennials, are, are and, and me as, a, as an ex-gen, we're facing really dire circumstances 25, 30 years from now if we don't address this issue. I think it's crazy that the United States of America spends 17, 18% of its GDP on health care when our closest competitive nations only spend 12% on healthcare, and that these healthcare costs are going up and up and up. So, so these are things that we all can agree on. And I'm gonna tell you, the solutions to these may be painful, may have vested interest groups in them, but the reality is, is we got, all of us in this room got together and said, what are some things we can do to grow our economy right now, to address these, these problems with so-called entitlements, uh, and to deal with some of the injustices in our country, we'd come up with solutions that most Americans would agree on. And so I'm going to conclude really by pushing the challenge back on you.
Because as I found out, and I believe strongly, and I say it all the time, my staff is sick of me saying it, they literally carved it on a rock. Uh, and I, I was worried they were doing that to throw it at me, but they carved it on a rock to put it on my desk. But I always say democracy is not a spectator sport. It's not. And if you send people into the federal government and think that's our duty, like I was one of these people, I was so excited about the, the first Obama campaign, running around, I was so excited, just elect Barack Obama and all my problems will be solved. No, it just doesn't work that way. And let me give even more challenge to you. This is why I love millennials. I mean, I just think your generation is the greatest generation of Americans since the flappers. Um, um, and, um, but let me tell you why. Because this generation is yielding the greatest disruption in, 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 in human society, especially American society. And let me just give you, I'm sorry I'm going long on this answer, but I want to I give you the hope for politics. You all are disrupting everything. So I already said you're disrupting media. The fact that in my pocket right now, I can communicate instantly with more people than watch most sort of during the daytime cable shows is pretty extraordinary. And you all syndicate media. In fact, the democracy of the media now, where your voices are able to penetrate, uh, uh, um, is, is, is incredible. We're democratizing data. Data used to be something that only select groups of people had. It wasn't available. But now more people can get it. We're democratizing education. This, this model that we're in right now, I'm about to get really in trouble. You never want to get in trouble with not only the president of a college, but he's a father too. Um, but I'm about to get in trouble. This model that we have right now of delivering education is a very expensive model. Stanford put some of uh, their classes on, uh, uh, on the internet and they're being subscribed by people all over the globe. And by the way, the people all over the globe from developing nations are doing better than the Stanford students. I know you Villanova students says figures. Um, they're Stanford students, Cor. Uh, um, but, but the way we deliver education from K through 12 to higher education is going to start changing. Why can't a professor be a free agent? And I, I'm the best person at lecturing in physics. Isn't there better ways for me to get my information to touch more people than the way that I'm doing now? We're democratizing work. Look at it, go home and look up a company called Samasource, which is taking micro tasks here in the United States, setting up computer terminals in places in developing nations, and letting people do that work. They may be only making $3 an hour, but in their communities, that means they're in the elite. We're democratizing capital. This idea that you have to go to banks, these institutions, to get money is beginning to be rattled a little bit. Think of Kiva right now, one of the great um, lending institutions around the globe. Think of a Kickstarter. If you have an idea or a vision, you can get ac access to capital in ways you never did before. So I could go on and on about all the things. We're democratizing consumption with collaborative, collaborative consumption. This is one of the things I'm most excited about because everybody can be an entrepreneur. There are companies now that if you just have space in your car, you can go on the internet and people will hail you like a cab. And you can pick people up. And by the way, you don't have to worry about picking up strangers because people have been rated before. You could decide only to take people with four ratings, four-star ratings, five-star ratings in your car. Your college student has a weekend. Instead of going out and getting drunk, you can actually go out and take people in and then use the money to buy beer. Um, so my, so my, 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 I'm getting in trouble. I will never be invited back by the father. <laughs> um, um, so my point is that, that there's this, this massive force. So now let's think about democracy that you can disrupt. Number one, I love the Elizabeth Warren Senate campaign. Love the Elizabeth Warren Senate campaign because she was, she stood up on issues about 
uh, about Wall Street and the like that I thought were really, really good. And she was painted as a radical, but she had very sound issues on banking. She, she uh, consumer protection, you name it. And so here she stands up and, and all these big super PACs are coming in to put tons of money, but because of the democratization of contributions, she was getting one, two, three dollar contributions from all over the country, and she raised 10, 15 million dollars on the web. So here we have this old institution called the United States Senate, the United States Congress. Why does it have to function in the way that it's doing right now? Why can't we use technology to disrupt it, to create more transparency, to better hold people accountable for their behavior? Because in the shadow of darkness, these interest groups and these lobbyists have a lot of sway. I couldn't figure out why um, uh, the Attorney General Holder was, was, was um, censured. It didn't make sense to me. When I saw Democrats voting to censure this guy, it didn't make sense. And one of my friends stood up and said to me, Corey, it's because the NRA was raiding that vote. In other words, you couldn't keep your 100% rating if you voted against that, if you voted uh, against the censure. Ah, suddenly it made sense to me. Because this one interest group that doesn't use that much money, whose very membership disagrees with it on certain issues, is able to hold sway over the most important legislative body in the globe. That doesn't have to be. We can be very creative in the way that we start disrupting that body. And so, as a guy who's, I've tried to hack mayor, being a mayor in America, and I mean that in all seriousness. When I, used to, when I was mayor in, before 2009, I said this in earlier, I, I had to go to, if I went to 10 community meetings in one day, and there was 100 people maybe at each community meeting, I'd only touch 1,000 people. Now I, I, can, I can touch tens of thousands in my city. I could crowdsource my own staff. I find out about water main breaks before the head of engineering does. And, and so there's incredible ways that we're, we, from the mayor's seat, started to use technology to flip the script on people. And the last example I'll give, and this is the longest answer I'll give in the night, speed round after this. But look, I, I hate how people, media, stereotype cities. I mean, if I turn on late night TV and hear a Detroit joke, anybody see Die Hard yet, the new, newest Die Hard? Nobody saw it? What are you guys, studying or something? Go to a movie. <laughs> Anyway, they did. <laughs> um, anyway, they, they dissed Newark in the movie. So I got tired of seeing my, my, me being, my city being the butt of jokes. I take it very personal. And so this overgrown redheaded beast of a man, you guys might know him as Conan O'Brien, was on The Tonight Show, and he insulted Newark. I had done this program for healthcare, and he goes on his show and says, hey, there's a new program in Newark for healthcare. I think the best program for, um, for healthcare in Newark would be a bus ticket out of town. And, and I'm, I'm writing down who laughs. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. And so I suddenly realized, wait a minute. Conan O'Brien has 2.5 on The Tonight Show, had 2.5 million people watching his show. The old way, old media, non-disrupted uh, uh, local governance, the best American hope to do was to write an angry letter, which would be read by the intern's intern, or I could hold a press conference, Channel 432 would show up, but no, this is new media, new age. I knew from looking at the consumer impressions on my, on my tweets that I was reaching more people than he was reaching on a show. And so I went behind my desk in a very serious, stern way with the flag. Whenever you put the flags behind you, you know you mean business. <laughs> and so I put the flags behind me. And, 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 and then I said, I said, look, this is Newark, New Jersey. And I bragged about the city. And I said, Conan O'Brien has insulted our city. 
and I now hereby, in my capacity as mayor, put Conan O'Brien on the no-fly list at, at Newark Airport. And I said, the last line I said is, try JFK, buddy. And then, <laughs> and then, and then we put it on the internet. And guess what? It went viral. It went so viral that civil libertarians, I'm not exaggerating this, wrote me hate mail that I was violating Conan O'Brien's civil rights. Yeah, like cry me a river. I'm really worried about Conan O'Brien's civil rights. <laughs> and, and, and this is not, I'm not exaggerating. TSA on their front page of their website had to put, sorry about this guys, had to put, uh, had to put a, a, a disclaimer that said a mayor does not have the right <laughs> So we were astonished, and it was working better than we imagined. And now Conan has to respond. Literally, he goes on his show. He plays my video to his 2.5 million people, and he takes some umbrage with it, and he therefore bans me from Burbank Airport. Now, I don't know how many of you are from California, but being banned from Burbank Airport ain't no big deal. <laughs> but still, I'm a guy. And men are saddled with many disabilities. One of them called, is called an overflow of testosterone. And I had, to, I had to, he was trying to step to me, so I decided to step to him. And I recorded another video, and this time I banned him from the entire state of New Jersey. <laughs> and this shows you what kind of insidious bastard Conan is. Excuse my language. <laughs> Excuse my language. <laughs> I'm going to hell. <laughs> Um, and, what's that? It's Lent, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, we will have a private confessional after this. Um, so Conan, this is how insidious this man is. He actually, I'm not joking, he calls the, Newark, the New Jersey mayors that are in towns around me to see if they will grant him access. And the mayor of Elizabeth, anybody here from Elizabeth? No, let's talk about them then. Okay, <laughs> Elizabeth. That second-rate New Jersey town, <laughs> that mayor lets him in, gives him access. So this now, I'm now angry. We go back and forth, more videos. And then the Secretary of State for the, for the most powerful nation on the globe, a woman named Hillary Clinton, no joke, no joke, she posts her own video saying basically like Rodney King, why can't you all just get along? <laughs> and so... I go on Conan O'Brien's The Tonight Show to make up. In the beginning, we just did a breakup hug, but by the end, he gave my city $100,000 in charity, and we made up, and I gave him a real hug. And so it shows you, my friend, I don't, I, God willing, uh, uh, I get a chance to serve the country and the state of New Jersey, but this is a time where we have to just use our imagination. We don't have to surrender to these institutions as they are. We can find creative ways to make a difference. Okay, speed round. Last two questions, really quick. Last over two here, questions, really and then quick. Over there. How are we doing? I'm well. What's your name? Uh, Mike. Mike? Yes. You're not from Elizabeth, New Jersey. I'm right? not from Elizabeth. I'm okay. not from New Jersey. So okay. I can't vote um, for Governor Christie or you. So don't worry. Okay. <laughs> that is um, a Governor Christie fleece. Yes, it is. Is that, is that the Governor Christie fleece? I wish. It'd be a much larger one. Ho, 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 ho. You don't got to go there, man. All right. Um, as, a, as a surrogate for the Obama campaign, yes. and, uh, you kind of got some criticism over the summer for um, coming out in support of the private equity industry. Yes. Um, and I think it's interesting that you were introduced by someone who kind of works in that industry. Um, so can you just talk about, as a surrogate for someone like Barack Obama, 
going out and supporting something that maybe is contrary to the campaign's views? Well, let's be clear. First of all, the, Barack Obama gets lots of money from the uh, finance industry. Number two, uh, I can name them. They're friends of mine at Bain Capital or some of the biggest bundlers for Barack Obama. So, so you know, I, you have to learn to first distinguish through a campaign rhetoric, which, which we had actually a good conversation about earlier, from the reality. And so this is my reality as mayor of the city of Newark is I face every day poverty like should not exist in this country. I, I face inequity that should not exist. I face good women raising their kids who, because of environmental problems, we have epidemic asthma in Newark. We, have, we used to have epidemic lead paint poisoning, which you don't even need to have lead paint poisoning. You can just have elevated blood lead levels, and it's directly correlated to learning dis disabilities. So I can go on and on about people just because of the community they're born in, Forget before their kid even gets to seventh grade that the, the deck is stacked against them. And so I have to, I can't engage in philosophy. This is what I just don't have the luxury for. And even if I go on to another office, I have very little patience for. I've got to, and this is why I've chosen, uh, uh, one of the reasons why I've chosen to live in the tougher neighborhoods uh, 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 along my life journey, because I always want to be close to the urgencies and close to the heroes in this country who find creative ways uh, to advance the envelope in tough neighborhoods that many people are afraid to walk in. And so now I say that, let's go to this thing I have to do called create jobs. And the, the point I'm, I want to make is that you, you, you cannot create jobs in, in America by vilification. <laughs> you, you have to create jobs by bringing people together and finding out how to create economic opportunity, how to advance an, an economic vision. And so let me give you some examples of this. We have a $130 million um, development going on, employing hundreds and hundreds of people from my city. This was one of the more difficult capital stacks to get, to get done. In other words, to find financing for this, for this project, we had to pull a lot of things together, from government incentives, to discounted land, to you name it in addition to large financial institutions playing a role, something called tax credits that Prudential came in and, and bought up the tax credits and made the project possible. Goldman Sachs was uh, sent in their urban investment team uh, and, and, and did a, some remarkable financial work, discounted a capital work to make it whole work. So on the day of the, uh, of the ribbon cutting for this, Chris Christie, not wearing that, was sitting in the front row. Democratic legislators were sitting in the front row. The head of Google was in the front row. Head of Goldman Sachs was in the front row. Community activists were in the front row. I can go on what the, what the, what the long front row was about. All these folks who don't normally come together, but who helped to make this project work, that's going to create hundreds of millions of dollars. And if you use a multiplier effect in terms of the, 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 uh, in terms of the jobs and economic change it's going to make, and it's such a big project that's going to change a whole neighborhood in Newark. And so I live in this reality every day where I don't have time to vilify folks. Now look, I believe in fairness. There were things in the bankruptcy law that really made, me, made, it, made it upset for me. I've seen what credit card companies can do when they're unchecked and lobbying in Congress. I think that, that when friends of mine who, who are um, in the finance industry will talk to me very intelligently about curbs and reforms, and by the way, aren't that different from Elizabeth Warren? I, I, so I believe that there's reforms can be necessary but it's crazy when you vilify all of private equity. And let me give you one more example of this. I don't know, I, w I haven't sat on the board of this institution, 
but I've sat on the board of other colleges, and when they need to get returns on their investment to keep tuition low or to provide services, where are they investing? I don't know where you guys invest your, your endowment, but I know that unions, teachers' unions, uh, um, um, uh, auto worker unions, they want to get their best return on investment, so they invest in the finance, financial industry as well. So I take a very balanced approach with always an understanding that my focus is create a nation that's more fair and equitable for the, for the most disadvantaged people that are here. And this is the last thing I'll tell you I'm worried about. And it's not necessarily with the finance industry, but it's an overall trend within our economy. I'm really worried about there's been a decoupling over the last decade between economic growth and wage growth. And, and this, is, this is very troubling. It makes me think, what do we need to do about this? in the sense that uh, real wages are declining in our country, even though we're seeing slow GDP growth, but we're still having GDP growth. And so if we could start coming together and figure out what the solutions to are this, and, and I'll tell you what some of the solutions are. Well, number one, uh, uh, we've got to start figuring out ways to create job growth that pays a living wage. And this is, I think, some of the conversations from the president's speech. We've got to start preparing our, our, our kids, kids in my city, for a 21st century economy. The Merck, which is one of our biggest um, pharmaceutical companies in, in, in New Jersey, 60% uh, of their biomedical statisticians, they can't find them in the United States. Very high salaries, they can't find them. So they have to go outside of our country to get 60% of the people on that line on because we're not producing a workforce ready for 21st century jobs. So I can go on and on about the things we need to do, but I get very uncomfortable when we start vilifying everyone. I get very uncomfortable as a Democrat when we, when we say things like, all Republicans are bad. And, and it's just not the case. In fact, my, my first fundraiser in Washington, D.C. Was, was thrown by two guys. Uh, one was an ex-professional football player, one was an ex-professional basketball player. The basketball player was a guy named Bill Bradley, who continues to be one of my heroes. And in fact, when I was trying to figure out if I should run for the Senate, he was one of the guys I went to. And the other guy is a guy that now has passed away, whose name was Jack Kemp who I first met in inner city uh, East Palo Alto. And I, I remember be going there cynical. I didn't want to like the guy because then he was a Republican and I didn't like Republicans. And when I started actually talking to him and he challenged me and I listened to his speeches, I'll never forget a speech I listened to at the Commonwealth Club, I found that he was right on a lot of things he said. There were perverse incentives at the time that if a woman had a sick child and was on welfare and left welfare to get a job, she would lose her health insurance, and so that, why would she ever get a job? And, and so he was the guy that actually thought up empowerment zones. He didn't think them up, excuse me, he championed them in Congress and got them passed. And today, that $130 million development I did is within an empowerment zone that his legislation helped to empower. So to me, we've got to get by as, as vilifying industry. Should there be reform in the financial industry? Yes. Should there be form in access to capital? Yes. Should there be reforms in the loan, the, the, the mortgage, mortgage lending? Oh my God, there were, there were horrible hawks in my city putting people in houses with, with what's called ninja loans, no income, no jobs, that were ridiculous. They should, in my opinion, those folks should have gone to jail. So are there, are there reforms? Yes, but, but I can't stomach. Uh, it's hard for me to sit back and watch any uh, whole-scale vilification in our country. All right, last question. The person has, it's pressure. This is like the last question. It's got to make people cry. You know, it's got to be, somebody's got to weep. Oh my God, maybe. <laughs> What's your name? Um, my name's Melody. And Melody, I'm, is, that a, is that a Cory Booker fleece? 
that you're wearing? Uh, no? Yes. No. Actually, it's knit. <laughs> um, and um, I'm from New York City. and where, um, where in New York City? From Harlem. Okay. And so... Are you on the east or west side of Harlem? East side. So that's far from, Jer that's far from Jersey. Yes. Yes, yes it is. Does, do you but feel I saw Brick City, and I, I really empathize with everything that's going on. Thank and you. And so um, I just want to say that... Um, I'm from New York City, and I have these two guy friends that are from the South Bronx. It's a very dangerous neighborhood, and it seems like, and we all go here, obviously, and we're in this global poverty class, but we, we can't even speak up in the class because sometimes changing the world means changing someone's mind, changing someone's views that they feel d deeply and strongly about, and sometimes I'm just like, I'd rather just, you know, stick to my own than try to convince someone that they should be held accountable for it things that are not going on maybe within the five-mile radius. So I just wanted to know, like, can you give me examples where you, like, try to convince someone that, you know, problems that are happening in New York, in, in Newark, <laughs> that um, can indirectly affect them, that they are accountable for what's going on in your city, even if they're from California, even if they're from, you know, rich neighborhoods and things like that. No, I really appreciate the question. I, I really appreciate the spirit it comes from. Um, Look, it, I mean, that's the, that's the hard thing about life, isn't it? To try to help people understand that we're all in this together. Um, there's an old, old proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And America really faces a, a, a real problem right now um, because we, we don't understand that, um, and let me put it in data terms. Uh, there's a wonderful report that McKinsey did in 2009, I think. It's her Disparities in Education report. and they analyzed the cost to our GDP of, of, of the, the persistent disparities in educational out opportunities and outcomes for blacks and Latinos, for minorities, and for non-minorities. And so we have this real gap um, uh, that's really problematic to, you could think it's just, well, it's problematic to those black kids in Newark, or just problematic to the Latino kids in, in Spanish Harlem, or you could see it as a threat to me. Now, McKinsey, being data-driven, they looked at um, this from a quantitative analysis, and they basically saw that it cost us in lost GDP about 1.3 to 2.3 trillion dollars, because the, an educated person is far more productive. And then there's things you can't measure, like like what what's the that that artist that never got a chance to manifest their art, um, that poet that never got a chance to manifest their poetry. But just on again GDP terms, but the scary thing is is that Recently, in the last five years, um, America crossed, um, crossed a, a, a point where now there's no more majorities being born. In other words, of the children being born in America right now, the majority are minority. And you know, blacks don't have the majority, Latinos don't have the majority, whites don't have the majority. We're just, we're just really are this American mosh pit uh, where there's lots of different people from all different backgrounds. Now, I think that's wonderful. That excites me uh, because at the end of the day, Genius is equally distributed geographically, ethnically, racially, religiously. And the, the mo that's the most natural, that's the greatest natural resource we have, and it's just a matter of cultivating the genius. The problem is, if these disparities exist, continue, and this is why I think my, my friend here, I, I wanted to hug him earlier because he set up a scholarship for kids from Newark to come, to, uh, to come here to Villanova. Um, but if, if these kids are being born today, 18 years from now, if they're in the workforce, remember, more and more minority kids, what does that mean to our economy? And what it means is not just the lost GDP dollars. Let me tell you a fact. 
uh, uh, uneducated people who are also poor cost far more than it does just to educate people. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, so I see this every day. Um, I see people who, uh, who don't get the benefits of an education. I see schools that fail their genius. I have my, my county college, uh, head of my county college tell, told me in anguishing detail about kids that graduate with B's, come to the county college, sign up for college courses, can't take college courses because they don't qualify yet, have to then take remedial courses. Well, they burn through their Pell Grants, and when it's time, while working, taking remedial classes while working and raising small children, then when it comes time for them to take college level courses, they can't afford them anymore. And now they drop out. And now they're stuck in this world that Obama uh, uh, spoke about, where you work hard, a job and a half, and you're still living at or below the poverty line in America. And so we don't understand, I think, fully in America how this all affects us every single day. I understand it because I've got my State of the City address. I'm announcing something that we shouldn't have to announce. I'm announcing that I'm going to hire more police, and people are going to applaud me because now I have more police that I can lock up more people and make the problem even worse. And so we've got to break that cycle. And, and, the, and the reason why I felt like sort of this, this kinship with you is because, look, I grew up in the greatest town. I, I love my community. So please don't think anything I'm saying is, a, is negative about my community. But when you're the only anything in a community, you, when you're a minority, you kind of bear a burden, don't you? So, you know, I have gay friends of mine saying, I'm sick and tired of trying to educate people <laughs> about what it means to be gay. And, and like Daniel Bao, who patiently, the young man that when I was an undergraduate, who I asked the stupidest insulting questions to. But, and, and you know what the reality is? I know that looking back, I feel a little ashamed of that because I can't tell you how many people when I was growing up asked me the most stupid insulting questions. Uh, but you know what? It's about love and, and being gentle with each other. And so I, I, when you ask the question, I know it kind of came to a point, but I look at you and I feel like it's kind of a burden to sit in some of these classes and, and hear things that, are, are, that you strike you as, as apparent and ignorant and feel this kind of like, hey, I gotta tell people about what it's like. And I don't know anything about your background. But I remember at Stanford people who just, just took things for granted. I, I take for granted being a guy. I honestly do. I don't have to think about my gender every day because the world doesn't force me to feel my securities based on my waistline or if I run for office, there won't be one article about how I dress. Won't be one article. Hillary Clinton runs, I promise you. There'll be lots of articles about the clothes she wears. I just don't have to deal with that. I, I take for granted being heterosexual. I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't have to think about it. I'm not forced to think about it. But I do know when it comes to my race, that this world reminds me that I'm black every single day. And so I've spent my life, from my perspective, trying to get other people to understand. And, it, and it's hard. But I'll tell you this, this is where, where I want you, I just, I've got to end on hope. It's just like, it's, if I didn't end on hope, where would I be? Um, first, just remember what, what, what Daniel, uh, this man who listened to my questions about him being gay and I fired everything about him. Think about where his kindness, gentle, and his love for me turned me from somebody that had a lot of bigotry into somebody who confronted my own ugliness and turned me into an activist. And so loving somebody 
doesn't just necessitate them recognizing you for a human being. When you love, it commands that you recognize them as a human being, even though they may be expressing ignorance. And, and love can't get weary. You know, we can't, love can't stop. And, and you're called to be an instrument of love. And in your class, there are some days you just, you just want to run. I've had those days. I just want to run. I have days at my job where I come home feeling so beat up by the world that I just want to curl up on my couch. Forgive me, Father, but I have an intimate relationship with these two men, Ben and Jerry. Um, um, <laughs> and, and, and then, because I like, I like a group thing, I invite Stuart and Colbert to come on too. And I just lie there gorging myself, which is, I know, a, a sin, and, and watching and hoping these two men will make me laugh. And, and that's why this is a courage definition that I hope you take. I really hope you take this courage definition. The courage is not running into a burning building. I'm sorry, that's not courage. Uh, um, courage to me is getting up every day. And those days that you feel the weight of the world on you, where you are sad, where you feel shame, where you feel frustration or just exhaustion, and still going out that door and doing another day of loving. And, 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 and if you can live that way, it's, it's how Harriet Tubman lived. How could she go back 19 times with people hating her? The viciousness, loving that way is, 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 is how I saw James Meredith do. That 50 years later, he spoke of loving the, those students that hated him. And, and so my call to you is every opportunity, every day will give you a brilliant opportunity um, to just love someone, even despite their, their faults. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm going to conclude with, with just, um, just one more moment of my life. And I wanna I'm just going to try to make you laugh now. Can I do that? Okay. So this is my attempt to make you laugh. So um, I think that the most difficult, uncomfortable points in our lives are God's test to see the state of our evolution. I really do. I think that airports are wonderful places to see how much we've evolved, <laughs> okay? Because when the TSA is doing things to you that my last girlfriend didn't do, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, if you can smile and give that guy a break because he's working a job that makes you know, probably not that much money, he's just doing what he's told, he's got a supervisor on his back, if you can make that leap of compassion. Now, when I was 19 years old, now I need you to do me this favor and just picture me when I was 19 and I was a football player because I was chiseled, okay? <laughs> now I just jiggle, but I swear. I was chiseled back then, okay? And I used to have to fly from Newark Airport to, to uh, SFO. And I'm on one of these times where I'm weary, I'm exhausted. I had just had my mom and dad telling me every single story they knew because they wouldn't see me for a while. And I get onto the plane, and by the way, I'm six foot three, and it's cruel and unusual punishment when I sit there and the person in front of me puts their, 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 it's just like the scars on my knees are still there. I covet your shortness. <laughs> and so, and so 
I'm just like loathing six hours on this plane. And then I sit down, the door to the plane closes. And um, amazingly, it's packed. It's like sardines in there, except for there's two seats open next to me. Now, I come to the only conclusion possible at that moment. And the father, I can get a witness from him, it would be great. The conclusion I came to is I looked around and saw my two seats hectares. I stretched out my legs. The only natural conclusion is that God loved me more than all those other people. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and so I'm now singing songs from my childhood. Yes, Jesus loves me. <laughs> and, and, and then just when I'm like looking with pity at all those other people packed into those seats, the door to the plane opens and the cabin fills with this cacophonous screaming. And I thought that only two things could happen. Either somebody was being killed out there or that some beast was about to walk in. And unfortunately, a beast did walk in. It had three heads. It was a woman and a little boy and a baby. <laughs> And the baby wasn't a baby. It was like a nuclear-powered speaker hooked up, and, or maybe it just didn't have any other organs but lungs. And it was making so much noise. And then this is, this is going to happen to you also in life, if it hasn't happened to you already. There are moments in, in life where everybody around you has ESP, and you can all read each other's minds. And so everybody on that plane looking at this woman stops and in unison like synchronized head turning looks at me and i could tell everybody there was thinking you smug little man it serves you right and then as she comes closer to me i could i looked for a bible verse and the only one i could find that was appropriate was oh lord why hast thou forsaken me and and she comes over and this is another thing that will happen in life like i rank my life's stupidest questions. I don't care who you are. They said, no such thing as a dumb question. There will be a dumb question that will come out of your mouth. So she walks up to me and she says, excuse me, sir, I'm sitting there. And I look up at her and give one of my top 10 stupidest questions of my life. I look up at her and I say, are you sure? <laughs> and, and she looks at me and she gives me this, she gives me the like charity of looking at her ticket and saying, not looking at every full seat and saying, yes, sir, I'm sorry, I'm sitting there. And so she comes over, she climbs over me, she sits down, the baby, I'm telling you, is screaming and crying. And I sit back and I think to myself, this is going to be the worst flight of my life. But then something happened at 19 where I evolved. In an instant, I realized that, wait a minute. I've got power here. Alice Walker said the most common way people give up their power is not realizing they have it in the first place. And suddenly I realized that I could either accept this as situation as it is or take responsibility for changing it. Or in our conversation earlier, I could see, is this a chance for me to be love, to, to be the brilliance of that light, or to be dull and, 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 to, and to close down? And so I turned to her and I said, how are you doing? And she looked at me and I, I started talking to her. And as soon as I got out of my own drama, I suddenly started feeling immense compassion for this woman that was her first time traveling with her kid and that everybody was staring hatefully at her as if she was outside of the plane right before she got on. And she said to her baby, cry now, cry. 
And, and it's amazing. We do this on college campuses. You guys know this. You meet your friend. How you doing? They're all stressed. Oh, I'm so stressed. And you say, yeah, I'm stressed too. Then the guy says, well, I've got two papers and a midterm. And you're like, two papers. I got four papers, six midterms. And then the other person says, I got three hours of sleep last night. And you said, three hours of sleep. I got three hours of sleep last week. And it's like a competition. And so we started talking. Plane takes off. And now the baby's starting to settle down. I'll never forget this. The, the, the movie Glory came on. She said, I have never seen a movie. I haven't seen a movie in the longest time. I said, you got to watch this movie. Um, it, you know, Denzel Washington's in it. He's like, you, you got to see that. You got to see it. Um, and, 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 and so, you know, I say, I'm going to play with your kid, and we keep playing games, tic-tac-toe, uh, a hangman. And then I let loose on him uh, with the best jokes I know appropriate for a seven-year-old. Now, this is the part where I'm going to see if you laugh or not. Why did Tigger and Eeyore have their heads in the toilet? Because they were looking for poo. <laughs> poo. <laughs> the plane lands, and it is the best flight I had ever had. It was the shortest flight. It felt like it went right away. I, was, we were all, I felt lifted. My extension of love to her lifted me. We got off the plane. We exchanged addresses. We said we would keep in touch. We didn't keep in touch. <laughs> Five years passed, 10 years passed, 15 years passed, and now I'm in that street fight that lost to March of the Damn Penguins. And it's a brutal election. And, and on my most tough day, those days where you feel beat down by the world, where you just don't want to fight anymore, I get a letter in the mail from this woman who says, you may not remember me, but I met you 15 years ago on an airplane on the first flight I ever took with my kids. And I thought it was going to be horrible, but I was lucky enough to sit next to you. And she went on to tell me about what it meant for her, and then she told me that her family was in Newark, that they owned a factory, that she wanted me to come by because she told the people that worked there, that lived in Newark, what my character was, but she wanted to give me an opportunity to tell them what my issues were. I came, and they ended up being uh, incredibly helpful. Uh, they ended up, the little boy, now a man, ended up being one of my best campaign volunteers. And then they even asked me a question that, there's only one politician I can think of, Bloomberg, who doesn't like, which is, can we please raise some money for you? And I said, yes. So long story short is that every moment we have a chance. And I'll, I'll end with this, the, 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 this metaphor that I keep in my heart, which is tonight you can go outside and look at the stars in the sky. And many of them are billion, not exaggerating that number, light years away. But they, they're, they're there. But actually they're not. Some of them have gone out. Because in the billions of years it took their light to travel to us, those bodies have gone out. But it's a testimony that the light we give off while we are alive lives forever. It goes on for generations. That love we expend goes on for generations. Those people who put a dollar bill of love in an envelope for my dad, their love lives in me. Daniel Bao, I haven't talked to him, no, I don't know where he is. His love lives in me. And so, all those days that you are weary, that you think, I'm not going to say anything, that they might not even hear my voice if I do, I say, determine yourself. Be, be, be steadfast and, and love, love, always love. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.